Everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin, the author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. As always, I'm here with Andrew Vance, host of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We're just uh, we're back alone this week, no guest, but we are going to go through uh, a platter of of early season uh, rumor content. Try to figure out what is going on with Matthew Vanderpool. Why is Wout Van Aert so good? How good is he going to be when he actually gets down to racing shape? And why did Mark Cavendish take so long to sign with Asana? But Andrew, do you want to talk about your podcast really quick before we get into this? Yeah, for sure. So Choose the Hard Way is a show where my guests share stories about how doing hard things build stronger humans. My guests come from a variety of backgrounds. They're some of the world's top performers. Coming up, I've got Alexi Vermeulen and his filmer, Avery. And I've also got this week... Hector Beltran, who's a former mixed martial arts fighter, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and he also is a high-level mountain bike racer. So come check us out. Choose the Hard Way. We are everywhere that you listen, and we are at choosethehardway.com, and you can find us on social at HardwayPod, and you can find me at Vance at Viaz and Victor O-N-T-Z. Great, great podcast. Highly recommend listening to it. I'm actually excited to listen to the Alexi Vermeulen interview. He was on Yumbo Visma for like a long time and then retired, self-retired, was forced retired from the world tour. And now he's on the gravel scene in the U.S. So I'm pumped to listen to that one. Yeah. And we answer questions like if you've watched any of his content, he does things that you've been told your entire life not to do, such as he's like working on his own bike at 10 p.m. the night before winning the <laughs> Belgian waffle rider. He kind of blew my mind to see his content and see him doing some of the things that I've done the night before races. There's a little bit of a delta in our performance and outcomes, but it's a great conversation. He raced the Lifetime Grand Prix last year. We talk all about that, about that transition from world tour into the burgeoning American multi-surface uh, racing content creator lifestyle. And he makes really fantastic content too, along with his partner, Avery. So you got to check it out. Yeah, you, you learn quickly a lot of those rules that, you know, yeah, you're not supposed to work on your bike the night before a race. Really good people are just breaking them. Like they're just, they're just more talented. Uh, I, I went to a race, like a really hard crit with a friend and teammate, and his bike was like literally falling apart. I think he had like no bar tape. The bar tape had fallen off over the winter training, and he won the race <laughs> against people that had aero optimized setups for the super fast criterium. And then this guy just smoked them all. So, if you're good enough, the rules don't apply to you is the moral of my, of my rant there. But Andrew, first things first, let's get into, you sent me this this morning. So we should update people. World Tour Racing has started. The women's Tour Down Under, I believe, finished last night. And then the men's Tour Down Under started right away with a, at least for us in North America, middle of the night prologue, won by Alberto Bediol. Um, Kind of a funny, I have like uh, gambling sharps texting me because I have a prediction show I do with Johan Bernil on the We Do Network. Like, who's going to win this race? I, I would not bet on the Tour Down Under. It's a very goofy race. It's very hard to predict. For example, Alberto, Alberto Bettiol, no one's heard of him since he won Tour of Flanders in 2019, went first in the time trial, puts down a time, it starts raining, no one can match him. Now he's leading the race, he could win the race overall. So it's a, it's a fun race if you like to look at Australia. If you want to see riders after a long, long winter of not seeing racing, it's fun. but it's really a televised training camp, in my opinion. It's not does not hold a lot of clues for the rest of the season. But so just so people know, 
World Tour season has started. We're probably not going to talk about the Tour Down Under that much on this show. We're going to get into some things that we think are maybe a little bit more interesting. The first thing Andrew sent me this morning when he woke up, Dylan Van Barl said he was offered to stay with Ineos, the team he won Paris Roubaix with last year. And he's also helped win multiple Grand Tours or at least podium at them. He's a fantastic domestique as well as being a monument winner. And he decided to leave to go to Yumbo Visma. What's your what's your like knee jerk thought on this? What's the first thing you thought of when you read this, Andrew? The reasons that he cited, I mean, he said, Hey, Yumbo Visma is the world's best team. They're on the ascent. They're continuing to improve, which of course implies, I think, as many of us has in, have inferred and observed that Enios is on the decline and they are no longer the world's top team and they no longer have the best staff they no longer have the best coaching and the big question that i have is how is this going to play out in the classics i'm sure you're thinking the same thing like we have the typical you know wow is saying oh this is this is great fantastic welcome aboard dylan we're you know it's better to have two aces to play at the end of the race rather than one it gives us tactical advantage if we're both in that winning move but you know i mean wow is on the record saying hey my lifetime goals are i want to win flanders and i want to win roubaix so what do you think happens my first i would be if that's your lifetime goal don't raise cross what are we doing man just we're gonna get on, to we're gonna get to that focus Spencer. on the spring classics um my yeah, I think it's gotten really, I think part of the reason, well, first of all, we're both old enough to remember when Sky slash Enios was considered like the best team to develop your career. And they were leaps and bounds above, above everyone with the science of training. Uh, their, their team doctor during that era just, I guess, is going to jail or at least he was stripped wanna, of his medical license. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. I want to yeah. circle back to that one. But, or just like straight yes. up, they were just straight up breaking the rules, like ordering testosterone and potentially EPO. I might be misremembering that to the headquarters and they claimed it was like a misdelivery. I doubt that. So yeah, who who knows? That, that's definitely uh, put some of their past glory in a little bit of a question, I would say, to put it, to put it mildly. But that's cra- it's been crazy to watch. Like Ineos, I mean, they are good. They have a lot of money. I think they had the they led the world tour in pro cycling stats points last year, so they're still putting up results. But it does not seem like within the peloton they're seen as a place where you want to go to develop as a rider. And I think part of the reason Ben Barrow left is because it's so hard to win a monument. It's so hard to big win these big one day races when you're the main guy on the team and the team doesn't have a lot of other great options. I think it's probably one of the things that's changed in the last five years that. We might look at Yumbo and think, well, how's this going to work? They have Laporte, they have Van Art, they have Van Barrel now. That's too many leaders. And, and for a Grand Tour, it would be. I don't think that that's a bad strategy for a three-week race or even a small stage race. But in these one-day races, so much stuff can go wrong. You can crash, and you really get bullied and beat up if you're the lone leader. If you remember, like Peter Sagan, I think, got marked out of probably three or four monument wins he could have had in the prime of his career because he was like the only main one day right racer on his team. So I, I would imagine Wild's pretty happy to have so like a lightning rod come over. So if it's like, hey, if you just want to sit on my wheel, I have two teammates that can easily win this race and they're going to get tacked. And what are you going to do about that? You're going to have to pull me back up to my teammates. So I think it's probably a good 
even if it looks crowded, it's probably a net gain for Van Art because it puts the competition in a really, really tough position to either have to chase down Van Art's teammates with Van Art on his wheel on their wheel, or just let Van Art's teammates ride to the wind, which is unlikely to happen. So it might look crowded. I, I think this is a really good strategy from Yumbo, and I, I bet Wout's pretty happy about it, even if it might, you know, maybe would cost him. He might have to get a, give a win or two to a teammate, but I think over like over the course of a few seasons, it actually nets out as a positive because you don't get marked out of so many races. Okay. So you think it's going to work out all right? Because that's what happens in the national. He finishes like second and third in every national team race because he just gets marked out of those races, like the Olympics, the world championships last year. Like if he just had stronger leaders on his team, I, I mean, that sounds a little ridiculous because... Remco Evenepoel's on his team, but they're maybe not working together as well as they should be. But, you know, if he had, if they had like a cohesive strategy and a bunch of strong leaders, I think that's the way to win modern monuments. I think, I think Van Barrel realized I'm going to be the, the marked man next year because I just won Paris-Roubaix and there's no one else on this Ineos team to, to take the heat off me. Yeah. I, reading about Wout's race schedule for 2023, He's declared he has no intention of pursuing the green jersey at the tour again. And he's going to be all in on helping Jonas if Jonas makes it to the tour. And I'm, I'm sticking by my prediction that he may not make the, the line or he may not complete the race. But if Jonas is at the tour and Wout is there, he's going to be riding in support of Jonas. He's chosen to forego the fantasy suite of the green jersey, and he's saying, "Hey, I'm just gonna I'm gonna be a stage hunter," which somehow he's gonna do while also supporting Jonas. So he's giving that up. He has stated lifetime goals: I want to win Flanders, I want to win Roubaix, I want to win Road Worlds. And I just I think that this might get a little bit sticky. You're right. Van Barl could be marked out. That could open a door for Wout. But I mean, come on. It's not like Wout's not a marked rider already in the classics. But he hasn't done well. Like he's he's never won Roubaix or Flanders. I mean, it's not whatever they're doing at Yumbo is not working. Like he should have multiple wins in both those races. And then they've not been able to deliver him to a win because he's he always is a little isolated, like more isolated than you would think, based on how strong that team is. And everyone just sits on his wheel. I mean, that's how Van Barl won Roubaix last year, if I'm remembering correctly. Let me look that up. I know, I think Wout missed Flanders because he had COVID. And did he get, where did he, yeah, he got second at Roubaix. And Van Barl won because everyone just staring at Van Art and saying, hey, you going to do anything about this? And then it's going to be so much better when Van Barl's on his team because they won't be able to call his bluff like that. Possibly. Speaking of marked writers, I read, I think yesterday, that Sagan has declared that he would like to win Milan San Remo. <laughs> and I mean, that's fantastic. Like, good for him. He says he's over the five bouts of COVID that he's had. He's finally back at full strength. Long COVID is, is no COVID now for Peter Sagan. And he is, he's calling his shots. He's saying, hey, I'm going to go for Milan San Remo. Of all the races you could pick to predict a win, that just that just seems like such a tricky one to uh I mean, good for him for setting his intention, but 
What do you think about that, Spencer? I kind of love it. I mean, it's, okay. so what do they say? It's the hardest race. It's the easiest race to ride. It's the hardest to win because the fact that it's not so selective. There's the two right. climbs at the finish. If you, a lot, you know, sprinters can get over that last climb, but then that's really, it gets sticky there. So are you going to sit and try to win a bunch sprint? That probably wouldn't work for Sagan at this point in his career. Um, he was good at, at world championships and that was a hard course. So he's clearly got something left in the tank. But San Remo is the type of race where when you're the big favorite, you don't win it. And then the moment people forget about you, you win it. You know, it's like it's the goofiest monument of them all. It produces just wacky winners. Like, do you remember um, Jared Chalik won it in like 2013 or something? And no one had even considered him. I think he beat Sagan. No one considered him a favorite. So it's a race where being a forgotten over the hill type rider can can actually help you a little bit. I, I I do think it pains me to say I think Roubaix and Flanders are probably past Sagan at this point. I think he's just lost a little bit of his of his peak form. I don't think he can compete with you know if you think of like how good Pogacar is. Not even to mention Van Art and Vanderpool if Vanderpool is ever healthy again. I think that's going to be too hard for him to beat them at at those really really selective classics. So I I don't hate it. I kind of like the prediction. I like I like where his head's at. Yeah, I think you're right. Sagan is a flag in his drivetrain past uh, Flanders or Roubaix victory at this point. Yeah, and we'll see. And you're right. Milan San Remo, the victory usually comes down to, you're right, that slight moment of hesitation where the favorites are looking at each other and then someone takes advantage of that fraction of a second of a lull. They go for it and you know they either end up in that a two-up sprint typically or as we saw last year, they hit the button, they drop their seat posts and, uh, <laughs> and take off like, uh, like they're in the video game Spy Hunter. But- and that helped because the win San Rambo, the secret to winning that race is being willing to lose it. If you think of Motorich last year, Nibali, I believe in like 2016, that you know, when they did those attacks, that could have blown up in their face. If they get caught, they're, they're gone. They're out the back. They're not even finishing top 10. So if you're willing to put it all on the line, it gets tricky for the guys behind because whoever chases you after the Poggio will not win. And everyone knows that. So if you can get clear coming off of that descent or even on the, the climb before, you have a really good shot at winning because no one wants to chase you. And it's really hard for, for reasons slightly unknown to me. Um, it's really hard to get a teammate over that climb with you. Right. Now, now I'm looking to see what Pogacar's, uh, has he announced anything beyond he's going for the tour? He's saying he... He's prioritizing the Volta ahead of the Giro because there have been some talk of a Giro tour double. I think he's wisely set that aside for now. Or are we going to see him racing at all in the spring? Um, I'm going to check his calendar. Really, he's got a shared iCal with me. Let me check it. Perfect. Um, and so it does have him doing. Is this? Can this be right? Wait, what year is this? No, he, uses, doing... he, uses, he uses Outlook to share his race calendar with <laughs> yeah, me. He's a teams yeah. guy. Um, it has him doing Strada Bianchi, which is going to be interesting. San okay. Remo, Doors de, Doors de Vanderen, and, and the Tour of Flanders. And then Flesh Malone, Lies Besto, and Liege. So he will be okay. at San Remo and Flanders. So that's, that's going to be exciting. Okay. Yeah. Fireworks. The, the guy's a baller. He just yeah, he, he has he like, I feel like yeah. I want to try to win the Tour of Flanders and the Tour of France in the same season, and it might cost me the Tour, but I don't really care. 
Yeah, I'm just wondering if we're going to see him doing any asides to the uh, race motos this year or if he's going to keep his hands on the bars and his eyes forward. Do you think that was... Was that a bluff or was that just him messing around? I feel like if it was a bluff, it, it probably almost worked. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to something we discussed with Patrick, I feel like, uh, I mean, you talk to Johan all the time. You probably talked about this. I feel like, yeah, sometimes riders are doing things knowing that a DS in a car is going to see them doing whatever they do. They're going to pass that on to the riders over race radio or sorry, the team radio. And that could have an impact on um, psychological impact on the other racers as they're trying to evaluate what's going on with the people next to them on the road. I definitely felt he was trying to do a bit of a bluff with that. Yeah, I, I feel like Yo, yeah, Johan is a big believer in in uh, bluffing and then the director's telling people not to do stuff but johanna is also gets quite grumpy and upset because he thinks that writers these days don't listen to their directors and i think he's partially correct but i also think i think people listen to their directors too much back in the day like if you remember the famous lance armstrong bluff and then he attacks ulrich on alp duez Ulrich just should have raced his own race. Like, don't pay attention to Armstrong. Wait till you get to the final climb. If you're strong, attack him. If he's struggling, you're going to drop him. Like, I feel like that was the mid-2000s. People were just way too focused on, oh, this, this competition looks tired. Just like, no, stick to your strategy and go hard on the final climb. I mean, there was a tour, I believe it was 2017 maybe, where... Um, Froome was was screwed on a really, really steep final climb in the Pyrenees. No one attacked him. They just sat on his wheel, let him slow, slow pedal the climb. And then they put like 30 seconds into him in the sprint to the line. It's like, well, you could have put in four minutes into him if you just would have ridden your own race and not be so concerned about is this leader cracking or not. So probably that bluff would have worked in the past. But modern racing, these the kids these days don't listen to their directors and but in some ways it's it's good i think before this completely escapes me i want to go back to where we started i know we said we're not going to talk about the tour down under i would <laughs> like to- <laughs> we don't have a ban on it we can talk about it if you want <laughs> i as we agreed it it shall never be named <laughs> we shall never speak of it the question that i have is with what we saw at the end of the season in 2022 with road worlds in australia most of the big names sitting it out. Of course, there was the whole relegation battle happening at that moment in time, which continues today, uh, keeping in mind the next relegation deadline that's looming in the future, moving towards us like a time machine. Um, but why is this race still important? Uh, well, I, I reject the premise. <laughs> I, would, I would say it's not important. I apologize to Patrick and all our Australian listeners. I think it's important in Australia. Like they've done a great job of making it. It's the beating heart of the Australian cycling culture. They, yeah. they make it a festival. Like if I lived in Australia, I'd go because every stage starts and finishes in the same town in Adelaide. Um, it keeps the cost low because you don't have to move around. You can just, you know, as a spectator, you can take your bike and you can go ride the courses and then you can spectate. It's probably really fun. 
it's almost like an events business that has a race on the side. But in the global scheme, it's it's not particularly good for training because it's generally too hot, you know, like in the 30s Celsius, which is like 90s to 100. Like you'd rather just be in in Spain right now or the Canary Islands or something like that. But that you have to go because it's a world tour race, uh, probably because they pay the UCI quite a bit of money to get it on the world tour calendar. So teams, if you're a world tour team, you can't skip it. It's just not worth the trip to Australia. You know, it's hard on your body. It's expensive. You're down there doing a race that really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. You're picking up some UCI points, but you can just go to smaller races in Europe and pick up the same, if not more, amount of points. So it really isn't important, but you do have to go if you're a World Tour team. You can't choose to skip it like people were doing for Worlds. If it wasn't mandatory, you would probably see the same thing. I mean, I don't want to out him, but George Hincapie told me that if you didn't have to go, no one would be at this race. It's like a complete inconvenience to all the top riders. And Spencer, do you, can you explain the mechanics of that in terms of how this works financially for teams? The UCI is is getting money from the event organizers, I take it. Do the teams have to foot the bill from their own budget to go to a race like this, or are they getting money from somewhere else? No, I think they have to foot the bill. I know for like the Tour de France, for big races like that, ASO will pay your um, your hotel bill, I believe. If you want extra rooms, if you want to do single riders in a room like Enios does, you have to buy that yourself. You might get a small gas per diem, but it doesn't really cover all your gas and maybe a, a food per diem, but you don't really get much race. And that's the, I think that's ASO. I don't think the UCI gives you anything if you're a team. So unless they've struck a deal with the Tour Down Under, I, I think the teams are on the, on the hook for, for all of these expenses. And that's why a lot of these guys fly out economy. I think like TJ Van Garderen, who was on a wealthy team, was on BMC. I think they were flying them out like when a four-stop flight in economy, which seems nuts. You know, that's not, that's, if I, I was a coach, I would not recommend you do that in January when it's actually you're, you're laying down a lot of important training for the coming season. So you're telling me that if Enios wants to have their riders in individual rooms during the tour, they're footing the extra 40 to 50 euros uh, per rider to get them that extra room at the Ibis Hotel. I don't, I don't think Enios, I, I, don't, I think they stay in nice hotels. I think, I don't know, the, I don't want to speak to politics that I don't frankly don't know a lot about but yeah. it's supposed to be random and you know a lot of these towns it's not big well, enough to have a lot of luxury hotels yeah. but Enios is like always at like the Ritz or the Four Seasons and then B&B hotels is always at B&B hotels you know it's like never it never actually seems that Enios has to be in not nice hotels okay we, we're jumping all over the place a little bit but like let's keep going with this wild card discussion let's go back to Richard Freeman the doctor from Oh, wait, before we do this, <laughs> just one more thing on the Tour Down Under. No, I insist. Go, no, go ahead. So if anyone, all five of us who watched the prologue this morning, they did it on, on road bikes so to keep the cost yeah. low so that you don't have to take two bikes down to the race. I kind of like it. I, w- am I crazy for thinking that this should just be how time trials are in, in cycling? I, absolutely. They should be on traditional road bikes. The question that I have is, did you see Pelo Bilbao's handlebars? I did not. I, I heard okay. about them. I did not see them. Boy, they're a sight to behold. If you were listening to this, I recommend that you go search right now. His, his brifters are almost perpendicular to the hoods. It's 
it's really wild. I guess this is a legal position. I, <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not the expert. Uh, the headline it's, it's, I see is it comes pre-crashed. <laughs> Have you? I mean, the bigger I'm question at it right is now. This, um, this looks illegal. I'm actually shocked that this was allowed. Yeah, my the bigger question is: Has this been seen on a group ride in Boulder yet? This like perpendicular to the bars brifter setup. And if you're listening, you of course can't see what we're talking about. You perhaps will go search for it, but it's almost like a mountain bike lever setup on road bars is how I would describe it. Yeah. I, I am questioning the legality of this. It's not a bad idea. This actually would be a pretty fast position. I, I full disclosure, I do not have my shifters brought in on or brifters i guess is technically what they would be because they're also brakes canted in on my home bike i did rent a bike for like three weeks last year that had that and i i felt really slow when i got home i i considered briefly canting my own brifters in to get because it allows you to have your your profiles more closed in when you're up on the hoods but then you can still have the control when you go back to the drops if, if you want the control or you want to sprint or something like that. So I think it's, it's probably a good idea. This is to an extreme that does seem unsafe potentially. Yeah. I can't believe that this guy didn't get thrown out of the race. It just doesn't, uh, seems like one of those we're about to get a UCI communique about this in the next 24 hours. I also want to know who was renting you a road bike that came with pre-canted levers. It was just like a local company in Italy. Okay. They're just trying to get those. How they do it over there. Yeah. 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 You've got to get those arrow gains on this. Um, so I feel like we're going to go into the weeds a little bit here. I'll just try to give people a little bit of background. So team sky starts like 2011, basically the government's putting in money in conjunction with the Murdochs who own Sky and own the team. They, Britain is kind of struggling at the time, but they're getting ready to host the Olympics. They're not producing a lot of Olympic medals. They're losing colonies left and right. So they think, oh, we're just gonna, let's create a Tour de France winner and we're gonna be like the world's greatest cycling country. And we're gonna win a ton of gold medals at the Olympics in London in 2012. It worked, um, it all worked. I thought it was crazy at the time, but. They come in with these revolutionary ideas, some of them good, like warming, cooling down and warming up before races. Wow. Who would have thought that that was Ooh. a good idea? But it, people were making fun of them when they were cooling down in the first year. Now that would seem crazy not to cool down. So some of their stuff was groundbreaking. You know, it's like really just obvious things that worked really well. Uh, there, there was some odd stuff going on, like um, the UCI president at the time. I'm, I'm friendly with him. I don't want to throw him under the bus here, but his son did work for the team and they were getting, I would say, preferential treatment where they would say, Bradley Wiggins is going to die because his asthma is so bad. So he needs steroids during the right. tour, but he only has asthma during the three weeks of the Tour de France. Yeah. So he just got to legally do steroids where no one else did. Just you know, a lot of corner cutting and, and figuring out like it's like Belichickian where it's like, well, it's within the the rules so i'm not cheating you know, but it's really a lot of gray area so their their doctor this guy is is it, it's like a hilarious comedy of errors i guess if it wasn't about cheating in sport and then a man's life falling apart but he you know you can read emails from him he's not the bumbling idiot he pretends to be in public where 
you know, he's a cutthroat guy. Like he would be sending emails um, when these things were deposed that like, we need to fire so-and-so because I think their ethics are not malleable enough. You know, we need people that we can lean on in this organization, just like cutthroat cheating, I guess, I guess is what you would call it. But they viewed it as, you know, taking advantage of maybe opportunities in the, in the, the weak rules that were set up. But this guy starts getting in trouble. He's ordering testosterone and EPO to the, to the headquarters. And he's claiming that he was bullied into doing it by Bradley Wiggins' coach who wanted it for erectile dysfunction. And then his laptop is subpoenaed. And he says, oh, I, I accidentally threw it into the ocean when I was on vacation in Greece. I was just like, you know, like he had like 15 laptops that he just threw into the ocean magically. I mean, it's not a terrible legal strategy, I guess, if, if you're just I have a compulsion. I can't stop throwing laptops into the ocean. What are you going to do about it? Sorry. Um, but it was just like a long and drawn out legal process. He's eventually stripped of his medical license for you know, breaking the law by doping athletes with these illegal substances he's ordering to the team. And, and I apologize. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. I hope I'm not getting too much wrong. And then that he appealed it and then it was upheld yesterday. But what's not clear to me is, are there legal ramifications outside of him not being able to practice medicine? Do you know anything about that, Andrew? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't. It's the thing that's striking to me about all of this is, and I'm also searching around because I'm trying to find the correspondence that you're refer referencing. I haven't seen that in the... I was like, I was deep into the trial. I, got, I was watching okay. the trial live for like okay. three months. And I just remember when they were releasing the internal communique and it was a right. different person than it was not the bumbling idiot that he portrays himself to be in public. Yeah. I mean, he's not Samuel Bankman Freed um, in FTX, huh? Um, I, I think the question that I have is how does everyone else have plausible deniability and how is this guy taking all of the heat as though he were <laughs> like a well, rogue, rogue I love, operator? I love what they've that? done. It's like the classic OJ where Wiggins and um, Dave Brailsford are like, we will not rest until the true villain is caught. You know, it's like, yeah. what about you guys? What are, what are you talking about? But, but that's why you hire these doctors and you have a medical advisor because then it's a fantastic receptacle to, shove all the all the wrongdoing on and then you can sink him to the bottom of the ocean sink him or her to the bottom of the sea and then say oh our hands are clean we will not let this happen again i mean that's essentially why he was in that position in the first place right and yeah I've, now i want to go back and take a look at the the records that you're referencing because the other people involved i'm wondering how he ended up be the person being the person putting these things in writing. Uh, yeah. Anyway, there are a lot of people out here listening to this that may have greater depth of knowledge about it than I do. So I'm not going to talk about it anymore. It just struck me as uh, almost comical that this one individual is who it, it appears he's guilty of this. He's been stripped of his medical license now. That's the news today. And he has taken the fall. I mean, I'm, I'm happy. To, I, I was actually kind of bummed to see this pop up again. I was very happy to have this behind us. I thought this was kind of a, a dark period in the sport just because they were so dominant during that time. I mean, this is when they won what they won, like Froome won 
five tours. Is that right? Am I losing my mind? Four tours. Garrett Thomas won one. Bradley Wiggins won one. Inger Bernal won one. I mean, they were just dominating at the tour. And just the fact that the UCI president's son worked at the team and they were able to get away with what I thought was a lot of rule breaking. It might not have been, I think Botters calls it, Jonathan Botters, the EF principal calls it like oxygen vector doping. Maybe they weren't doing that, but they were definitely doing shady stuff where um, lying about underlying health issues that required anabolic steroids and uh, stuff that you could take things that would let you lose 20 pounds without losing any muscle. Like that's a massive help in cycling. I, I wish I had that medication. So I, I didn't like, I just didn't like that whole period. I thought that was some of the worst racing in maybe since the Lance era where he was just trouncing everyone. So I'm happy to have this behind us. And I think even though, you know, you see very good riders now that potentially that type of favoritism from the UCI to a certain team is not still happening. On a related topic, let's talk about Thibaut Pino and his recent statements in the press regarding doping. Well, we should first say he's retiring at the end of the year. This is his final season racing. This is Thibaut's victory and farewell tour. And I'm looking at the first thing that popped up when I put this in Bing. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Microsoft <laughs> yeah. Bing. When you need to search, Bing is ready. Thibaut Pino has done cycling a service by voicing his doubts. If you are not up to speed on what's happening here, Thibaut Pino gave an interview in French media, I believe, to L'Equipe, and he made some blanket statements about the ongoing nature of doping and professional cycling today and throughout the course of his career. And then he underscored that he has always been a clean writer. I have some questions about, did, did he say that? I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, guess that I've... was kind of, that was kind of what, you know, it was kind of a, I, I didn't do this. I mean, he's been vocal throughout his career. He's been vocally, anti-doping he's positioned himself the narrative he's put forth is that he's a clean writer i mean the other headlines that are popping up in this being searched Thibaut pino speaks out about therapeutic use exemption abuse I mean, yeah we right did, and that key just ketones exactly talked to, <laughs> i don't know he's talking about ketones like is, uh, is if they're doping but that he, he he has a point because it, it ties into exactly what we just said where yeah um Sky was abusing the therapeutic use exemptions, and then Pino was vocal against that at the time. So if he's frustrated by that, I can understand why. Right. And I think where I netted out after reading the articles about Pino's comments, I'm just wondering what specifically does Pino know? What is happening in the sport currently? And why was he not more specific in his his accusations at this point? Because I think that it would be helpful to get that out there in the public domain. Like we certainly hear things, we've talked about them on this podcast. And here we have a pro writer at the highest level of the sport, more or less saying doping continues today. Uh, you know, I haven't done as well in my career as I could have. 
because of doping. Well, what specifically is going on? I think shining some light on methods and I could understand perhaps not naming names or not naming teams, but it would be beneficial, I think, for someone who's inside the sport at this level and active today to talk more about like what are the methodologies that writers are using. I guess, he, yes, I was disappointed as well. I find it a little unhelpful when people make these blanket statements. Um, and, and I did read the piece and it was a little less sensationalist than maybe the headline made it out to be. He did have a weird comment where he said he thought he might have been doped in 2012. I mean, he won, if people don't know, Thibaut Pino burst onto the scene. He won a Tour de France stage in 2012, really impressive ride. And he was supposed to be like the next great French hope. He was going to win the tour. He never really, I think he has one grand tour podium to his career. He never materialized as a great grand. He's a, he's a great one week stage racer. Never materialized as a good grand tour rider. He just couldn't string three weeks together. Uh, famously at the 2018 Giro, he probably had a good chance to win. And then stage, you know, I think that was like, I don't know, maybe the second to last stage. Maybe that was a different Giro. There was like a Giro where he just physically became unable to ride his bike. And we got the classic Pino crying and then the team ordering everyone on the, uh, the director ordering everyone on the team to go back and ride and hug him while they ride. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that tactic. But he, he had with this weird comment where he's like, I, I was worried I had been doped during when I won that stage because I was so fast. And it's like, well, I don't think that's exactly how it works, Tebow. I don't know if that was a, uh, a tr thing that was lost in translation or what, but he did seem, yeah, it seemed that he was saying that, you know, it didn't ruin my career, but it often frustrated me or put doubts in my mind. I told myself that a guy, a doped guy might not train as hard as I did. And I could compensate by that going deeper. But yeah, he doesn't name any names. And then the oddest thing is, so he was at the Vuelta España last year. You know, he gets close to some stage wins. He, he was, actually was quite good at the Vuelta. Right. You know, he's getting beaten on stages by Miguel Angel Lopez at that race, who now is, I guess, been blackballed from the world tour for doping. Same thing with Naira Quintana. And I, I don't, don't quote me on that. I also think the reason Pino's not saying anything is because he doesn't want to get sued. Because in Europe, you can get sued a lot easier than you can in the U.S. for saying things about people. But he gets 14th overall at the tour last year. The guy who got sixth, gets stripped of that result, Naira Quintana, for testing positive for a banned substance, and then is fired by his team and is still not signed by another team because they clearly think he's too risky to sign. And then Pino doesn't say anything about that specifically. That, that was the weird part to me where you could point to his two most recent races where he's at least it appears to have been cheated out of results by people who cut corners, and he's not mentioning that. That's where it fell a little short for me. And if you're just tuning in, Quintana used tramadol, which I believe is now banned by WADA, but at the time it was not. It was just the UCI had. Yeah, and it's just right? a race. It's a race ban because it's an opioid. It's a good logic, I think. You can't be whacked out. There used to be crashes, like crazy crashes five or six years ago, and it came out that everyone was whacked out on opioids during the race on, via tramadol. It's a painkiller. So if you're going 45 miles an hour in a group of 200 people and you're all high, probably not a good idea. Um, so they, they banned this during the use of races and crashes have come down, especially those massive, 
know, super catastrophic crashes they were having for a while there. And then Quintana tests positive for it at the tour. It raises a lot of questions. I mean, why would you take that? You know that you're getting tested. It doesn't make any sense. It's also, I believe, not banned at home and at training camp. I don't know what I... I think it seems a little suspicious to me because if you, let's just say, if, if I did it, this is how it happened. If you're going to blood dope, you would take blood out during a training period when you're not racing and you would put that blood back in during a race and anything you were taking during the home period when you were taking blood out might come up in a test when you are racing, which is how Contador got caught. Listen, Spencer, if a group of world tour riders want to get together in the off season, uh, in the basement of one of their homes and take tramadol. That's, you know, that's their business. Or it was in 2022, no longer the case now. I think with Quintana, and again, we talked about this in previous episodes, the supposition is if he were busted for using a kind of a, at the time, a gray area substance, then what else was he doing? I think was kind of the logic slash perhaps people uh had knowledge of something else that's total speculation but that's that was kind of like the word on the street at the time and subsequently we've seen him not land a contract right i mean i would even go i would say the supposition the uh, i mean i'm just saying stuff this is not binding fact but i think teams perceived it to be an echo positive if you will that he tested positive for it because he was being naughty with blood bags during the Tour de France. And that's why, but that still doesn't totally explain to me, since when do teams not want to sign riders with doping problems? I don't quite understand where this has come from all of a sudden. I, I even wonder if there's something going on with the UCI where they're saying, hey, if you guys sign these riders that we suspect of breaking the rules, your, your license, because they do have the power to deny you a UCI World Tour license based on ethical grounds, so maybe they're being a little bit harsher on, on the ethical judgments. I'm not quite sure why Lopez and Quintana are not on World Tour teams this year. Even if you thought they were a huge risk, we've not seen that deter teams in the past. Well, let's move on to a slightly less controversial topic. I'm sure that you did not prepare for this question today, Spencer, but with the Saudi sovereign wealth fund purchasing the wwe they of course have also launched their own professional golf league do you think that there's a non-zero chance that they make some kind of play to purchase major race organizations and professional cycling how do i say this i think there is a good chance that that i i wouldn't be shocked if that happens the only way live is people cite live a lot what's funny is live is seen as so negative to like the general public like if you're just walking around living your life reading papers it's just like all negative and then if you actually talk to the upper upper class golf crowd they are really big into live because they think that the pga is really has an exploitative structure towards the the golfers themselves and that it's not fair and it's good live is trying to disrupt them you could probably say the same thing about cycling where um, the situation could be a lot better for the riders. The thing is you can't start a live in cycling because you need the roads and you probably need the race. You know, if you just start like the grand, the great big grand cycling race in Saudi Arabia, instead of the tour de France, it's not going to pop. I mean, you need, 
the Tormala, you need the Alps, the Pyrenees, like you need these iconic stages and basically the coliseums of cycling to make it work. But they could go after ASO, who's the organizer of the tour and Roubaix and the Vuelta. They could, I think, I mean, RCS is right to be purchased. That's the Giro organizer. The Giro is, is a beautiful race. It's probably my favorite race. It is not healthy in the in Italy. Like it's not getting a lot of attention. If you if you go to Italy and look at their sports papers in the morning, it's never cycling on the front page. The roadside fans are like lowest I've ever seen them in the Giro. I'd imagine RCS would probably sell for not a crazy amount. So I, I wouldn't be shocked to see the Saudis buy RCS and then say we're moving the Giro to July. And we're going to give you 5 million bucks if you show up and race this race. And then all of a sudden, you'd have all the stars going to race the Giro. And it would put the tour in a tough position. Let's go from Saudi Arabia to a muddy field in the UK. I'm sure that like many Beyond the Peloton listeners, you were riveted watching the British Cyclocross (laughs) National Championships over the weekend. Spencer, Tom Pitcock, of course, did not show up. He's doing an altitude camp or working on his suntan but who knows he was doing something else same thing with i believe van art um oh well yeah just the british ones but i i I don't think van did vanderpool race his national championships i don't think any of the top guys race their national championships i think they're all training yeah i don't know i i think you're right i think they're all training however cameron mason took the british cyclocross elite national championship he also i'm not going to remember which winter uh, Christmas period race it was, but he did take fourth behind the big three in one of the major races over the Christmas period, which I've been following Cameron's career for quite a while. He had a YouTube channel, or he has had a YouTube channel for quite a while that predates his relationship with Trinity Racing. Before that, he was just, he was an actual privateer, not, uh, not in the, I'm a, gravel racer content creator sense of the word um he just was like a kid in the uk he started making youtube videos uh of his cyclocross racing and training and it turns out he's a world-class talent and i'm just like when is somebody going to sign this kid to the world tour he seems like he's an exceptional talent and he's had i mean to get fourth place at that level in professional cyclocross only beaten by the th- three of the very best riders in all of cycling says to me he's he's got talent. I I agree. I mean, we had an off pod call last week where you were telling me about this guy Cameron Mason because I was asking who the heck he was. He goes on to win the British Cyclocross Championships, maybe not the biggest, most prestigious race in the world, but it's definitely he's twenty two years old, a track record of an ex, like an amazing engine. I mean, to get fourth behind the big three. In a super prestige or World Cup, it's a, I think it was a World Cup race, cross race. That's a big deal. I mean, this guy, and he races on the road. It is, I don't understand why he's not been signed yesterday by a World Tour team. I probably speaks to, I was listing out every rider on a top, a top 22 team contract in every transfer over the offseason. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fat to trim there. I mean, there's just a lot of guys who are probably making a decent six, six-figure wage who are not going to significantly help their teams as domestiques, and they're not going to win races this year. Why you would not swap one of them for someone with the upside of Cameron Mason 
is com- is completely baffling to me. I, I don't understand it. Um, if you're listening to this and you're a team owner or manager, I would sign him right now. Are you listening? <laughs> yeah, Charles, Aaron, are you listening from Human Powered Health? But I don't know. Maybe I mean maybe there's something going on here. Same thing with Luke um, Luke Laperti, who is maybe coming on this podcast. We hope. He's road teammates with Cameron Mason. They're both on Trinity Racing, which is, I believe, a specialized, sponsored, low-level development team. And you know, maybe there's something we're not seeing here where Specialized wants to funnel them to their world tour teams. And so it's not as easy as just going in and offering them a contract. You know, maybe they have Specialized has rights of refusal or something like that. Yeah, it was, and it was Pidcock's team before Pidcock yeah. went to the world tour. So that's... Uh, and they have cool bikes with pink seat posts. So they've they've got it going on from a style point of view as well. Well, while we're in the dirt, let's talk a little bit about Matthew Vanderpool's back injury. And I think where I would like to start on this one is by saying that back injuries typically don't get better by running in ankle deep mud or pedaling your bike at 600 watts and like 25 RPM. Or that's crashing just, like three yeah, times in a race. Yeah, that's that's just an observation that that I have about cyclocross and Matthew Vanderpool. I'm looking at his 2023 race schedule, which almost directly parallels Wouts. There are a few different things in here. Now they're almost identical. What do you think? Vanderpool's back ongoing back injuries and he has to be psychologically pretty traumatized at this point by just getting destroyed in the sport where he's been capable of if not being dominant you know 50 50 chance of, of beating Wout Wout rolls into the Christmas period if you watch the races and I'm not uh this is not to body shame Wout, but we know what Wout looks like when he is in absolute top form. He visibly was a few kilos heavy, I would say, in these races, and he just destroyed Vanderpool. And that I just have to think that has to be demoralizing for him. These guys have been competing since they were kids. Yeah, it, I mean they they are I guess equals. I've been looking at it, so. Vanart won World Championships in Cross in 2016, 17, 18. After 18, he really didn't have a ton of success against Vanderpool. I made the mistake in like 2021 of calling it a rivalry, and I just got like blown up via Instagram DMs from the Cross boys saying it's not even it's not even a rivalry. That's how much better Vanderpool is. When he wants to, he can crush Wout in Cross. And this year we've seen, you know, maybe that was true, maybe it wasn't. But this year we've seen, I mean, you can see on Vanderpool's face, he looks like he's hurt. Like he looks like he's in pain and he is gassed. Like he's not the same rider he's been over the last few years. Like it's been shocking to watch Vanderpool or Van Art just absolutely crush him on the terrain that he was probably better in until just this year. So what do you think this portents for Vanderpool's chances on the road this year? So, yeah, this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So to comment, uh, yeah, Van Art looks heavier. I guess I both like, I like that because I agree. He is like, if you looked at him in the tour last year, it was like unsustainably skinny. 
Um, right. That's smart that he's not trying to hold that weight all the time. It was probably absolutely like Tom Dumoulin struggled with the longevity of his career, just being too skinny too much. Um, and it's also maybe hard to tell in cross because they have a many layers on. I can, I can never quite tell how many layers they're wearing, but um, it, it's good because it's, I think it's healthy for him to have more weight. And it's like, oh my God, how fast is this guy going to be when he, when he goes down to Spain and loses, you know, five kilos in a month. So that's got to be concerning to anyone who is going to race against him this spring. Vanderpool, the thing that worries, getting crushed worries me less. Like Pickock's, Pickock does not look good. I think, you know, both of them, Vanderpool and Pickock did their first complete Grand Tours last year. They've both not been the same since they did that. They, they don't have the same pop. They look tired, which you would be after doing a three-week race. Um, but maybe, you know, it's possible they're just building slowly. They're like, well, cross is not what we're really paid to do. We're going to build slowly into the season. We're going to peak in the spring classics and then win a bunch of stages at the Tour de France. Maybe that's the goal. Um, and, and that could be. So we don't really know is Vanderpool washed or not, you know, to put it, to put it in caveman terms. But the back is concerning. And they've come out and now said they, they denied it at first that it was related to the Olympic uh, mountain bike race crash in 2021. But it did flare up after that. And now they're saying, yeah, that it was because of that crash and that the only way to fix it, I think what the quote was rest. It's like, well, you're not resting. You're doing the opposite of resting. You're actually putting the back under a ton of stress. And will it ever heal if you don't stop and rest? That's what's unclear to me. So if his back is bothering him now, I can't imagine that's going to feel any better after two months of hard training and then really, really, really physically demanding spring classics. And Vanderpool at this point, I believe, is still committed to racing cyclocross worlds, or I haven't seen anything saying he's not racing it. I think, and, yeah, that's the, right? that's the plan currently for both right. him and Van Hart. Right. And Pidcock is out. If we have a Van Art Vanderpool showdown at Worlds again, Cyclocross Worlds again, I think that's going to be phenomenal because I think Vanderpool is demoralized. His back is clearly pretty seriously injured. I want to, I want to see that race. I also, and Spencer, I know that you just went over this in the Beyond the Peloton um, newsletter, but Wout's been getting insane appearance money to show up at these cyclocross races, which in addition to being a competitor has to be part of the incentive for him. And I mean, can you speak to that briefly? Like how much money do you believe Wout has made (laughs) just from showing up at cyclocross races? And then I want to talk about the net impact it's had on cyclocross racing in general, because there has been one. It's a good question. I, God, I don't know. I mean, I mean, my co-host on my other show, Johan is probably, you know, he can speak to these appearances better than I can. I'd imagine it's six figures for every race, probably one or 200,000 euros every time he shows up to a, a super prestige race, which is not nothing. And I think the key is, and I'm trying to think how to say this without throwing anyone under the legal bus, but I know in the past, the practice was to pay you those fees in cash. So um, let's say you do 10 races for 200,000 euros. You have, what, 2 million cash euros? And that's your spending money. You know, 
you don't you never spend the money that you're you're making that just like goes into investments in your salary. So you're just getting this untaxable income that the government never finds out about. I don't know if that's what WOW is doing. I just know that's been the practice through the history of cycling. That's why those post-tour criteriums were so popular because you could go and make, you know, if you won the tour, you can make a million dollars in untaxable cash income that you just stuff around your house and um, you can maybe shove that into like a Swiss bank account eventually. So you know, I don't know if that's what he's doing, but yeah, he's getting quite a bit of money from these appearance fees. Probably the, the weird thing is he could probably make more than he's getting in appearance fees if he just didn't race cross. If he just went to Yumbo and said, I'm all in on the road, pay me my actual market worth, it probably could double his salary. You know, if, if he went out on the open market on the road and just said, I'm a road rider now, he could make more money than he's currently making. So he is like almost paying to race these races. Uh, but maybe he he figures it's good for his brand. It helps with the Red Bull partnership. Maybe it makes him happy. I I can't imagine it's good for his fitness. I mean, just to even be that cold and miserable when you could be in a nice uh, Costa Blanca training camp and it's pleasant and you're getting really good training in and you're not torquing your body and you're not stressed and you're not crashing. That seems like the better way to prepare for the road season. I mean, would you? What what would you do if you were in that position? I I would be warm and getting a massage somewhere. Yeah, that's what I, I think, would, right? I and do. like just like be at a resort training. That probably, but I mean, it speaks to who he is as a competitor. He clearly loves cyclocross. It's been core to his identity as a sports person his entire life. One of the knock-on consequences of the outsized appearance fees he's been getting paid, and Vanderpool apparently has been getting large appearance fees as well. Pedcock slightly less so is that the rest of the writers there's been this conversation about what does it mean for everyone else in the sport of professional cyclocross racing where when these three riders show up who are at they're 10 percent better I mean if you haven't been watching these races it's insane they're they'll be two minutes ahead of the next best writer and you know the guys who are who are winning back in September October before the big 3 showed up at the races are getting annihilated and it's one thing to have Pidcock, Vanderpool and Van Art show up and just trounce you uh, because they're at another level even though they're not doing this full time as many of the other riders who are professional cyclocross racers are it's the focus of their season but now this pool of appearance money because generally the pro riders at the top level of cyclocross they're all getting paid something to show up so they they get paid to show if they win they get you know or whatever they get top 10 i'm sure they get some kind of cash prize but the money's really in the appearance fees well sven nice the multi-time world champion has been on the record talking about hey like they're now some of the world's best riders are showing up they're not getting paid anything because all the money is going to the top three so in a way we're seeing the incentives for everyone else to actually show up and be part of the ecosystem of professional cyclocross like it's all drying up i in spencer i know you and i messaged about this and have been talking about it as well but I don't think we're ever going to see a season like this again. I don't think we will ever see Pidcock, 
Van Aert and Vanderpool racing this many times against each other in professional cyclocross ever again after this season. I mean, what do you think? No, I tend to agree. I mean, this seems unsustainable. And yeah, cyclocross is like brutal capitalism. It's not, you know, on the road you can, um, I don't want to say his name, but there was a rider who was like complaining that he wasn't getting re-signed for this 2023 season and he made good money, um, like a mid six-figure salary, but he didn't actually really do anything for the team. So uh, that's going away, but there was like, you know, there's this class in road cycling where you can just kind of putz along, make good money and, and never have to do anything. Cross is the exact opposite. Like if you're not winning or you're not competing for the win, it's going to be hard to demand those appearance fees. And that's really what you live on. So I guess we're seeing this extreme capitalism taken to the, like the, the margins where if you're a top cross promoter, do you care about having any other rider besides Van Aert, Vanderpool, and Pickock? Like, they're essentially doing their own races as is. Maybe two or three other guys just to mix it up, but you, you don't need to pay anybody else. And yeah, that's got to be devastating for that ecosystem. But then, yeah, if they step away, when they step away, they can't do this forever. There's going to be appearance fee pool money to go back to the other riders. I mean, this... I think this is a short-term thing that if you can weather it, maybe it could actually help you because it raises the profile of the sport. It could be easier to get sponsors when, when these top guys step back. It could be easier to demand more appearance fees when there's none of the top three at your race next year um, and you need to get Cameron Mason there. So you know, maybe it could help them long-term, but yeah, I, it's got to suck in the short-term for these non-top three riders. Yeah, <clears throat> the crowds, if you haven't been watching the races, the action... Uh, just the competition has been incredible. The crowds are bigger than probably they've ever been. I think people know they're seeing something special they might not ever see again. Just something else that jumped out of me. I saw a quote from former cyclocross world champion and former world tour writer, Shadenek Stibar, talking about how he got zero appearance money this year and the cyclocross races. I mean, this guy's a... He's a former world champion. He was a three-time. He was Wout before Wout. Yeah, he was Wout before Wout, and now he's showing up and probably like you know getting freets, maybe an extra side of um, Pals Mayo. Pals is one of the. I, I'd like to do a future episode. Maybe we'll do it next year, looking into the sponsors of pro cyclocross races in um, in Belgium specifically, it seems like their target market is someone who's a general contractor because it's typically like tractor supply, hydraulic lifts, and then it's sauces to put on your fries. Those are, from what I've been able to piece together, those are the sponsors of the races. But Stibar, maybe an extra side of mail. Yeah, it is crazy. And Stibar was like the it, the it man, you know, back in 2013. We're like, this guy's going to win five Roubaix. And now he's getting he's getting donut, you know. He's yeah, nothing. It's 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 shocking. But I guess that's the game you play when you're, you know, when you're in cross and you're not one of the best of all time. I, it's tough. I, I don't know what to, I I don't know what I would advise those guys other than stick it out. They can't keep this up forever. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Hopefully, things come around for Stebar. But as things are right now, I don't even think he'd get a he'd get a call up at Valmont. At a Wednesday practice race. <laughs> couldn't hang. He couldn't hang. That would actually be hilarious. I would love to see Steve Bar just like, just 
his second phase of his career is just traveling around the United States, absolutely destroying local series. <laughs> um, cross sponsors, they, funny you mentioned, they get stuck in my head. And I think about them way more that it has to be decent value because I would, not, I would not be spending my time watching these races if it was not for the big three. I hate to say I probably would opt out of cross season this year. Um, but I, these sponsors, you see them so much because they just do loops and loops and loops. I mean, I, I bet they're generating pretty good value for this. It's like one of them is Play Sports. And it's, isn't Play Sports the holding company for like GCN that's owned by Discovery? Like, why would they be advertising? Like, I can't purchase anything from Play Sports. They're just, they're basically like a tax, it's like a tax entity for Discovery to hold GCN. I don't, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with this information of you advertising your existence. Yeah, I don't know either. And you're right. You see the sponsors over and over. One of the things that's missing from typically super prestige and World Cup racing, the manner in which they put it on television or streaming, it's very well done. Uh, in the United States, where a number of professional cyclocross races are on streaming services, they typically use a drone for almost everything, which is a huge improvement over past seasons where it's been a couple of long lenses zooming around trying to show you stuff. It used to be really hard to follow. I'd like to see the drone added to the European races because you never get that yeah. overhead shot of like the entire race. And with the big three racing, you see them and then everybody else is, it's like stormtroopers and Star Wars. They're just kind of like, wandering around on the course getting lapped getting pushed out of the way when those guys come by i mean that's like there are people getting lapped all the time in these races which is nuts i mean i've been lapped in plenty of cyclocross races but i'm not one of the world's best cyclocross riders yeah you know? cross is brutal i mean these super prestige races they it's like 20 of the best riders in the world i mean there's an american finishing 10th um his name is do you know his name i'm blanking on his name he's fantastic it's not Curtis White, is it? It's Curtis. Okay. And like, those are like better results than Jer He's consistently getting better results than Jeremy Powers, who is probably the best U.S. cross racer of all time. Uh, maybe, Jonathan, maybe Jonathan, Jonathan Page. Page. I, I would Come say on. over time, I think week in, week out, Powers probably was better. Page could pull off unbelievable results just out of thin air. But he also spent more time in Europe. So maybe. He got, yeah, Page took second at a World Cup, which... Jeremy's an incredible racer. I'm not sure, Jeremy. I'm going to have to look it up now. I, don't I think he just... had one season where he was like popping top tens, basically doing what Curtis White is doing consistently, and you never even see Curtis White. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I All mean, right. Paige, I think, did move to Europe and almost never raced in the U.S., so that has kind of depressed his profile a bit. If he was racing in the U.S., maybe he just would have won every race every week. Yeah, potentially. All right, I've got a tea time. I'm going to have to slide in a minute. Before, before we wrap this up, though, Spencer, we know that we have the Drive to Survive producers. They're making a Tour de France series that's going to be dropping sometime in late Q1, I think, or early Q2 on Netflix. I don't know if you noticed this, but there is now a similar series about tennis. There's also a series that predates Drive to Survive that's about MotoGP that's available on yes. Amazon Prime. Fast right? or something and faster is the yeah. sequel. Yeah. And I, what I keep thinking about, and of course, there's the Movie Star documentary that 
is just, it's so somber and emo. What do you think the vibe of this Netflix Tour de France series is? And as more of these sports series proliferate, do you think they're going to become less special or do you think it still has the potential to pop? Now, this is a concern of mine because there's one with tennis, there's going to be one with golf. At some point, it dilutes it, right? You would imagine. Yeah. But then let's just think. So the real, real world launches in 93, whatever, uh, something like that. And like, you know, that, was re- that was like the main reality TV thing. And then if you told someone in 1994, like in 2023, there's going to be a million reality TV shows and they're all going to make boatloads of money and everyone will watch every episode of every one of them. They probably wouldn't believe you. So may- maybe there isn't a saturation point. Maybe, maybe reality TV is somewhat unsaturatable that you can just keep pumping them out and people will watch it. But I, I do worry about it. And I worry about, I- I'm worried about the cycling one because the F1, the F1 show, it's in beautiful locations. The people are beautiful. Like a lot of these riders are selected because they're handsome to be the drivers. Toto Wolf is just an absolute gorgeous man that you'd want to hang out with Beautiful. all the time. And I worry that cycling's not going to have that same pop. But I don't know. It, I, I could see it going both ways. That's my like concern, my, my, my like parental concern about the sport getting shown to the big wide world. F1 is a glamorous world, and it the drivers have huge personalities. They have huge egos. I know there are definitely big egos in uh, some corners of professional cycling. The personalities tend to be more reserved, of course, and that's what I'm most curious about and what exactly will be captured in the series. And again, going back to the the Movistar documentary, because uh, Karapaz actually, he strikes me as somebody who has, he seems like a very charismatic individual. I don't know him personally. I've never spoken to him, but at least that's the way he came across in that series. And then a lot of uh, the rest of the drama and action, it just struck me. I mean, and I love the series. It just struck me as super emo and somber. Yes, yes, you're not wrong. Yes, you're right on everything you just said. Carapaz does seem really charismatic. He also seems like a killer who yeah. races like that. And then he'll just, in the interviews, be like, yeah, they just weren't paying me enough. So I said, I'm going to Enios. Like, that's what you need. You need people to kind of just talk crap or talk frankly about each other, which in cycling, referencing the Pino interview we discussed five hours ago at this point, he just is not, you know, it's not the type of straightforwardness that you would want, that you would hope that would be dramatic. I, I get a little worried that everyone in cycling is used to speaking like out both sides of their mouth and it won't make it compelling. But the Movistar one was, I enjoyed it. But I feel like if you, if you showed it to someone who didn't watch bike racing, it would be, it'd be inintelligible. You couldn't watch it. It just wouldn't make any sense. So, you know, maybe the, the, the Netflix one will be more... I think if you watch a lot of F1, it's hard to watch Drive to Survive. And I have noticed they fudge a lot of stuff. Like they'll change a little bit of the facts of the race to make it more dramatic. Um, but that's good if if you're trying to get people that don't watch every minute of every race. Yeah. So TBD, but that's something that's on my mind because I just noticed the tennis series popped up this week and I thought, yeah, I mean, could be good. Also, I don't know. 
it's probably how most people feel about cycling. I'm like, is Pete Sampras in this? <laughs> like, who's good at tennis now? <laughs> like, I, I feel so out of the loop. But I, yeah, I don't know. I think the key is you have to have, it has to be like a little bit of escapism, but you also have to be into the petty. You know, F1, they're, they're so petty. They just complain all the time. The writers complain about the teams. The teams complain about other teams. The teams complain about writers. The writers hate each other. That's also a big thing. I think in cycling, it's completely undermarketed how much teammates don't like each other. Like that would be interesting to me. Um, I, I hope they kind of highlight that in the show. Yeah. Um, so the other big news this morning is that Astana has confirmed that they've signed Cavendish. Yes, yes. This is, I guess, surprising to no one. I mean, he's been like photographed yeah. being picked up at the airport by an Astana team car. It's kind of weird they didn't. I, I still don't quite understand what happened there. One, one thing I would flag is, so they have 30 riders in the team now. That's the maximum with, with Cavendish. Seth Bull, who was supposed to go right. to Astana, is not signed. And there's so not room you, for him. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Because as you've pointed out in your newsletter, and I agree with you, Cav can freelance, but he needs a lead out, man. Yeah, Astana has like zero expertise in lead outs. I, I kind of wonder if, if Cav was going to do this again, would he have waited to see who the tour was going to invite and then just go to Israel, who has a stronger team and probably would have matched his pay, I'd imagine. I mean, that team has plenty of money. So I, I wonder if there was a little bit of regret or maybe he's trying to go back on the deal there a little bit. But probably the, the boring answer is they'll fire someone. They'll, sit, they'll, they'll buy someone out of the contract and send them home with a year's worth of pay. And bring on Cess Bull, but it's I don't know. Maybe that won't work. I, if I was Cess Bull, I'd, I'd be a little confused about my future at the moment. Or maybe there's something he knows that we don't, and stay tuned. Yeah, and I think with Astana is one of the strangest teams. Talk about a team I would want a documentary about. Um, <laughs> that's a strange team. It's basically just run Astana. If you don't know, is the name of the Kazakhstan capital, and it's just a team run by the government of Kazakhstan and they've had outsiders come in and run it for small portions and it's not really worked out. So like Vina Kurov just runs it. Who's like the most famous person in Kazakhstan. And I, I'd imagine it gets, there's a lot of like political stuff there where if the government wants this many Kazakhstani riders and no, you can't fire one to bring on cesspool, you'll probably have to listen to them. So they might be trying to navigate a tr tricky situation there. A tricky situation indeed. I, uh, with uh, Miguel Angel Lopez departing the team to go back to the minor leagues in Colombia, something that I thought about is um, this is it's kind of similar to Mancebo going to rock racing back in 2009. Did you think about that at all? I mean, kind of, but he's Mancebo was old at the time. And, yeah, that's I mean, true. He Lopez wasn't, in, is, you're right, wasn't in the prime of his career. In the yeah. prime of his career. He's and, not going going to uh, Redlands at 42 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That was like more impressive. I, that was cool. I remember that and just being like, whoa, like Mancebo, like a legend. But you're not like, oh my God, he's beating everyone with one leg. Um, if the right. course was tough enough, he was good. But I mean, Lopez, it's bizarre. 28 years old. Uh, how many riders? He's probably the best high altitude climber currently. I mean, if it's he was out of shape with the Vuelta, who knows what was going on there in retrospect. Um, he biffed the high altitude stage, but out, he still got second, I think, when he wasn't even really in shape. 
you know, if you think back to the Col de la Lowe stage, I think that was stage 17 of the 2020 Tour de France, and he just wipes everybody up anytime it gets above 8,000 feet. I mean, that's a valuable guy to have on your team. It's crazy to me that he's just back racing, beating up on amateurs. I also, that's wild. It's like, okay, you're too dirty to race in the world tour. So go home and beat up on young riders who are trying to make it into the professional ranks. Yeah, no big deal. No big deal. And then race at Volta San Juan this week against your former team, whom you're too sketchy to be involved with. Totally normal. But why, why do you think Astana didn't announce the Cavendish signing? Were they? I've thought for a moment, oh, they're, they're picking a page out of the Andrew Vaughn's handbook. They're just trying to own the moment. We're all talking about Astana. But I guess what does that really help them? Are they, is that they're just trying to move units, move condos in, in the capital of Kazakhstan by, by holding us all on tenterhooks? Maybe they were awaiting the arrival of a custom Fendi belt or Balenciaga bag for Cav. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they needed something special to wrap up the deal. I have to imagine that behind the scenes, there were probably negotiations going on with Cav's personal sponsors. Uh, He has a long history with Oakley, with Specialized, and Astana are not on Specialized bikes. I was kind of wondering if they were going to boot Villiers. Villiers is the sponsor. I thought they might punt him at the last second. Yeah, I wondered the same thing. So I thought that's potentially what was going on. And then other than that, maybe it's something to do with Cesspool, bringing him on the team, figuring out who they're going to, who's going to get their shortest straw and will be going home from altitude camp without their embrocation. I don't know. I did meet a guy in the Dolomites one time who was on a team. Um, I won't say the team. And they had too many riders. And so they had to pay him to race for another team for like two years. So like yeah. that's a funny little thing that happens. If you have over, if you have too many riders or you want to bring someone on, Sometimes you have to pay a rider a salary and then place them on a team. And that team just gets them for free for the duration of their contract. Yeah, we could do a whole other episode on this. It used to be, I don't know what how it operates now, but in Italy in particular, it used to be common. You would have like a patron. You would, you know, if your family had money or you had someone backing you, you could pay your way on to an Italian professional team. That used to be really common. And then, you know, at the world tour level, we've, seen you know generational talents like Sagan and other writers like when they go somewhere I mean Sagan has I mean he has a cook someone who cleans his motorhome like they all come with him as part of the deal as do the sponsors with Cav I have to imagine it was something like that but well I think we'll we'll see over time the timing of this announcement is peculiar and (laughs) <laughs> it feels feels non-strategic. <laughs> so if you wanted to make the most of this news, I'm not sure that you'd be dropping it at 8.39 GMT minus five on uh, Tuesday, January 17th. But here we are. In the shadow of the Tour Down Under. I mean, no yeah. one's, no one's going to know what happened because the Tour Down Under is so big. Yeah, um, absolutely. Your, your good friend, Patrick Lefebvre, I, I was hesitant to come over to your side of thinking that he's just owning the moment with all these... But he's so good at what he does. He had everyone talking about the 2024 Tour de France because he was saying Remco Evenepoel might be there. And there was like five stories about it. It was like, this guy is just wrapped around his finger. Like, this is a tour after the tour that hasn't even happened yet. And he is talking about it. 
Yeah, he he is a master of the craft of communication. Uh, Chris Froome saying, I'm hoping to do it for a few more years. Uh, also keeping us on the edge of our seats. Also not a story. He's getting paid 5 million euros a year. Why would he not do it? Like, yeah. that's awesome, man. Just keep yeah. writing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, well let, there you have it. We'll let you go. We'll let the listeners go. Um, I'll just keep talking to the mic by myself for a few more hours, though. But I um, and you've got to come back on next week and we've got to go through the bikes and the components of the World Tour teams. This has been demanded by the people. I want to do it. I want to. I would just want to. It's going to be a free jazz session of if we think these are crappy bikes and components or not. We just have to decide if we're going to do it at Vecchio's or at Zoot Coffee um, here in Midcoast, Maine. <laughs> I'll, I'll fly out for for the episode. It'll be perfect. perfect. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks, Andrew. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you soon. Yeah. Take care.